uh, one of my mentors from early on in, in my ministry would tell the story occasionally. Um, he would use the story of Moses. And uh, if you remember, when God called Moses, he said, what's that in your hand? And, and Moses said what? It's a staff, remember? And he led the people out with a staff. Well, my friend, um, when God called on his life, literally he had read that story and he said to God, Lord, the only thing in my life the only thing I've got in my hand is a basketball. He was an all-American basketball player. What am I going to do with that? Well, in the story that he would tell is that uh, for years he used that basketball, um, played all over the Orient, and, um, and shared the gospel a lot, became a pastor later, and he was very good at discipling men, especially, while playing basketball. Um, I, I like to think... That if that years ago, when the Lord called John Fozard, what's that in your hand? I like to think he probably said, well, Lord, it's a laptop, because this guy lives with his laptop. Okay? I have told Marty Grubbs, when God asked him that, I think he had a yellow legal pad in his hand. You know? Think about where you were when God first called your life. We're going we're to talk about this a little today from Matthew 4. Let me give you a little bit of the background. Now, some call the, the gospel of Matthew the most Jewish of all of the, the four gospels. Um, um, he, it's clear from the way he sets out um, uh, Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1. Um, Matthew uses more than 60 quotes from the Old Testament. He explains the life of Jesus all the way from birth to resurrection. So, um, the flight to and from Egypt after Jesus is born is reminiscent of the nation of Israel's enslavement in and delivery from Egypt. Uh, Herod's opposition to Jesus mirrors that of Pharaoh and Moses. You know, there, there's all kinds of parallels here. Um, uh, John the Baptist preaching is also according to Scripture. We're going to look a little bit at that today. Uh, Matthew's Jewishness is also evident in his use of the phrase, he's, he's very um, uh, comfortable using the phrase kingdom of heaven rather than using kingdom of God in his gospel. Now he uses kingdom of God a few times, but most of the time, more than 20 times, he's, uh, I'm sorry, more than 30 times in, in uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, more than 30 times in the New Testament, the term kingdom of heaven is used. And all of those are in Matthew. So um, he chooses that. It could be that he chooses that because often a Jewish person would not say the kingdom of God because they didn't want to speak the holy name of God. So Matthew kind of picks up on that a little bit. And uh, that's kind of his plan as well. Um, um, now, um, Jesus spends time in the wilderness in Matthew's gospel. Uh, which immediately leads into what we're doing today. Uh, some will say that that's parallel with the nation of Israel uh, being, if, if with Jesus being in the wilderness 40 days to be tempted by the devil is parallel with the nation of Israel being 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness uh, um, before they enter the promised land. So all of that, even that 
temptation scene comes right before today's text that we're going to begin in uh, chapter 4. So if we're going to pick it up kind of right after that, and we're going to, if somebody would read, let's, let's uh, Cindy, I'm going to look to you if I can, to read verse 12 and 13 um, as we kind of get started. Okay, now let's look at a couple of things that are going to give us some background. John, can I get you to go over to Isaiah 40, and I'm going to have you read the first three verses. In That's going to give us some context. And I want somebody else to read Luke 3.23. Karen, would you go to Luke 3.23? Just go ahead a um, couple of books, um, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Now, Jesus has been in Nazareth most of his life, 30 years or so. Uh, we're going to find that kind of in Scripture. Uh, scholars think they can place from Luke's account of who's in charge in the region. Uh, scholars think they can place this about A.D. 28. Now, don't ask me to explain how it can be 30 and it's A.D. 28. There, there's a whole mathematic thing going on there. But, but just kind of trust me, it's around 30 when this takes place. Around A.D. 30 when this takes place. Karen, read uh, Luke... Um, what did I tell you, 323? So it even tells us what, what his age was. He was about 30 years old. That's interesting that, <laughs> interesting that Dr. Luke didn't say he was 30 years old. He says he's about 30 years old. I'm, so there's something going on there. Uh, but we know that he was about that age. So if you've got kids or grandkids or friends that are about 30 years old, think about that. Uh, and by the way, when you do, does that make you a little crazy? It does me, but okay. All right, because 30 years old is not what it was uh, 30 years ago. So yeah, um, uh, but but then I, I constantly am meeting 20-year-olds that are just sharp as a tack. So um, I get it. The Lord can, can do whatever he wants to do here. So this is all predicted, all right? He was south in Judah to be baptized in Judea there by John the Baptist. He went into the wilderness from there to be tested, tempted for 40 days. And now he makes his way in the passage that we're reading. He makes his way back to Galilee, which is kind of home. Nazareth is part of Galilee here. And he makes it all back home. Okay, uh, to there. Now, when John is arrested, at the time that John is arrested, he's just doing what the Bible prophesied from 700 years before that all took place. Now, I'm not saying John's arrest was necessarily predicted, but I'm saying what John was doing was predicted. John, uh, would you read Isaiah 40, first three verses? Familiar, familiar passage. Okay, now, this was predicted. 
literally, it, the only thing missing is the name John the Baptist in Isaiah 40. Uh, Jesus identifies John as he's the one that's supposed to come. John identifies himself. He sees that. He says, I'm the one that Isaiah talked about. Okay? So this has all been set up, not only for months in, in John's ministry, before Jesus really kind of has his public coming out at the time of his baptism, but it was predicted 700 years before that, okay? We're going to see some language here that Cindy read a minute ago about that. Now, what I think you and I have got to catch here is he's not south in Judea and fleeing to Galilee to get away from the heat. Because Herod Antipas is the ruler of Galilee, of that province, that area, and it's Herod Antipas who takes John's life. Okay, so he's not running from trouble. You could argue he's running right in the teeth of it, but the, but he needs to be in Galilee, not just because that's home. Okay, um, because he won't hang out much in Nazareth. We'll talk about that a little bit. But I think it's interesting here. Some other prophecy that takes place here that that is talked about. Um, comes from uh, part of what we're going to read here today. Now, what would be the base of his operations? If I were Terry Fakes, I'd have elaborate maps up here, but didn't do that, okay? I didn't want to wag a laptop up here. But um, Capernaum is going to be the base of operations. Uh, by the way, I'm going to have somebody, if you will, in just a minute, go to John 2.12. It's not on your outline. John 2.12. Who will get that one? Thank you, Joe, if you'll get that one. Now, um, uh, so he's going to be in Galilee. It's kind of the center of operations. And, um, and he's going to choose Capernaum in Galilee on the coast of the Sea of Galilee or this huge lake as part of the base of operation here, not Nazareth. Now notice this, Joe, read, read uh, John 2.12. Okay, interesting to me that mom and siblings come to meet him in Capernaum. When he's going back home, he didn't go back home to Nazareth. He goes to this fishing village in Capernaum. Well, fishing will factor into the story for today. Capernaum is 20 miles to the northeast of Nazareth, where he kind of grew up, um, near the old boundaries, now here's what we're going to get into in a little bit. It's going to be near the old boundaries um, that were set back um, 1500, 1400 B.C. when the land of Canaan was, was uh, occupied after the Egyptian, after Moses leads them back, back in the promised land. Joshua was going to divide the land and, and this is going to be, Galilee is going to be right near, right kind of in the, in the seat of what used to be Zebulon and Naphtali, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, and their parcel in the north, a little bit uh, west of, of Palestine. Now, uh, it's a common place. Uh, he's living among common folks. Let me consider a couple of things here. 
He was a nobody by outward appearance. In fact, if you read about him in the second verse of Isaiah 53, there was no form nor comeliness, it will say in, uh, in King James language. He wasn't born in a palace, but in a shelter for livestock. His hometown, Nazareth, is not magnificent, not like Jerusalem, but it's a middle-of-nowhere village of Nazareth, a village with less than a sterling reputation. You read about that. He was born to very poor parents. His early experience was as a refugee in Egypt. Think of that word and that thought. When his parents returned with him to Nazareth, he experienced life for the next 30 years as a, upon his, uh, when he grew up and for the rest of that time as a carpenter working hard. His life has been shared by common humanity. He lived in a common place, living among, uh, lived in a common place among common folks. And yet his life would be extraordinary. Not common at all. By the way, the, if I understand the um, definition of the word holy or holiness that's, that's presented to us in the Gospels in Greek, the thought is uncommon. If you think of Jesus being holy, you're thinking of him being very uncommon, and he certainly was. So that's kind of the backdrop for this. Now, let's pick it. Cindy, can I come back to you? Can, can we go to 14 and uh, read down through 17? Many will call the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament, from seven, eight hundred years B.C. Many will call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel because of the kind of detail that we get here. Matthew is going to really be interested in connecting the dots with us, um, uh, connecting the dots for us with what was predicted in the Old Testament and came true in the life of Jesus time after time after time. This is one of those where he pulls from Isaiah, one of my favorite, by the way, Christmas passages of Scripture, Isaiah 9, verse 1 and 2. I put the reference here. It's pretty well directly quoted here by Matthew. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, the darkness here refers to the north, which was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., all right? So since 722 B.C., um, Galilee has been more or less occupied territory, even though still considered somewhat part of Palestine. So if you're looking at a Bible map, and if you want to look at the end of your Bible, you probably got one in there where it shows um, um, the conquest of Canaan and the division of the land, you will see to the north and a little bit west, you will see Zebulon and Naphtali and the Sea of Galilee is right there. So Capernaum is in these places. Isn't it wonderful that Matthew connects the dots with us and says, way back there when Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness. 
uh, the people who, who lost their identity in 722 have seen a great light. I think it's wonderful that Matthew makes the, con the connection with us here that, that when Jesus comes to walk the planet, he walks Zebulun and Naphtali. How unlikely is that? You would think he'd be walking Jerusalem constantly. You guys were just there a few days ago, and certainly he was there. I remember my dad um, 50 years ago singing the song, I Walk Today Where Jesus Walked. You got to experience that. But he did most of his walking by the Sea of Galilee in the land where the people who walked in darkness now are seeing a great light, Zebulon and Naphtali. That's where he's doing most of his work and hanging out most. So the statement here from, uh, from Matthew's gospel in chapter 4 where he quotes from, um, from Isaiah 9 is a statement of renewed hope. To hear these ancient tribal names who are hardly ever spoken anymore by A.D. 28. They're hardly spoken anymore. The only place they would be spoken is somebody who has, who has you know, gone to Ancestry.com and figured out, I'm a Zebulun guy. Well, I'm from the tribe of Zebulun. How did you find that out? Well, I kind of, you know, I just sent my uh, DNA in and, you know. It's hardly spoken by A.D. 28. And yet, it's that place, Matthew says, where the light has shined the brightest. I hope you catch the drama of this, the sheer wonder of all of this, and the way that it connects with Old Testament Scripture. Now, he mentions here, as he begins to talk, we're going to have to camp out a little bit in verse 17 here, because as he begins, as, um, as Matthew begins to share the message of the gospel, what Jesus is going to teach and preach, it begins with a single word, repent. John's message begins with a similar expression. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to deal with that a little bit here in, in chapter seven, in uh, verse 17. Now, so the idea here is that this kind of repentance that he is invoking here, it really isn't, it, it is the idea of a change in direction but it's preceded by any change of direction in my life has always been preceded by a change. And I'm going to stick with me here because you're going to think I got this wrong, okay? Which, by the way, often happens. Uh, but any change in direction in my life has always been preceded by a change of thought and a change of heart. It's begun by, uh, always begun by the Holy Spirit saying, uh, don't you think you ought to change some things? And he speaks to me, and, he, and somehow through his word, through preaching, through some, um, some, some great um, uh, counseling, the message, you ought to change direction that I'm hearing here, Okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to live my life a different way. 
travels 18 inches from my head to my heart. And then I change. Okay? I cannot tell you. I had to apologize to Rhonda yesterday. <laughs> I cannot tell you how much plowing work the Holy Spirit is doing in my heart. And it's resulted in me being very emotional. Uh, we'll be talking about somebody or something. And, um, uh, you know, I kind of cry at the drop of a hat and I drop the hat. And I, I promise I haven't had a stroke, at least not yet. Um, uh, but it's just kind of interesting. I said to Marty uh, 15 years ago, Dad had just died. And I said, you know, I've probably cried more in the last six months than I have my whole life. And Marty said, man, I'm sorry. And I said, no, you don't get it. The Lord is just turning up ground in my heart. And it begins with him getting a hold of my mind. And then the change of direction occurs. Okay, so this statement here, this idea is a reversal of direction and a change in heart. Now, he says some things here that I thought we ought to just spend a little bit of time with. Um, I'm watching time. But um, uh, the three questions that I want us to deal with about what he is going to say here. Repent for what? Say it again. The kingdom of heaven is near. Um, um, I'm going to use what comes, what is used in the New American Standard. Uh, how does it say it in the NIV? Near? Is, is near? Um, I'm going to use the, the term just because I like it. Um, but it's also in the New American Standard. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? Well, we're going to dive down on that, drill down on that a little bit. So I want, I want us to deal here for a minute with what exactly is the kingdom of heaven what does the phrase at hand mean? And what do the two have to do with each other? Okay, we're going to look at a couple other places that will help us where Jesus is dealing with this at hand business, okay, um, or with the kingdom of heaven. So uh, can I get somebody to go to John 18, 36? Karen, I'll, I'll have you go there. And John 1, I'm sorry, Acts 1, 6. Thank you, Dan. Okay, we'll get to that in just a minute. Now, what exactly is the kingdom of heaven? We said it's really synonymous to the kingdom of God. It's just that Matthew uses this expression um, out of respect to the Jews. So the idea here is a reversal. If repentance is the message, then the idea is a reversal of the course of history. It's the idea in this kingdom, God reigns supremely. In this kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, listen to what Jesus, how Jesus kind of describes it in John 18, 36. I forget who got that. Thanks. My kingdom is not of this world. Will you hang on to that thought for just a minute? It is the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this place. And if I'm looking for him to set up a kingdom here, I'm probably going to be a little disappointed. In fact, those with whom he uh, did life with, um, with whom he did life, were really disappointed in that. Okay, uh, He's not all that interested in politics at, the, at that point. 
but he is interested in a reversal of the course of history in under God's reign. My kingdom, he says, is not of this world. Okay, so let's deal a little bit then with what the word here, uh, what the phrase at hand means. What do you think it means that uh, he says um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What do we think? You can reach out and touch it. Him, literally. What did I hear over here? It's arrived. Okay, so uh, I'm going to give you a phrase to think about here. I didn't coin this. I read it. All right. Um, uh, the idea here is that wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. Okay. And he's here. He's there. He's here now in, in his spirit. Okay, so wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. Now, uh, if I said to you, uh, if you look at the back door, a bear is at hand. The next phrase ought to be, we probably will want to leave. That run, that's exactly. Because why? Because you don't want a bear to be at hand unless he's inside of a cage. That means he's here, right? Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. Okay, so um, uh, that's at least one way to look at this. Uh, in, a, in a temporal sense, in time, Jesus is here. Okay? It could also mean, in a spatial sense, close by. And it could mean um, uh, this, uh, this near idea. It could also mean uh, that he's near in terms of relationship. But the truth is that all of those things are true because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's here. He's close. I, uh, now, I want you to think a bit, little bit about this idea. If it's reading in your Bible, the kingdom of heaven is near. Um, I've seen a lot of pictures posted this week on uh, social media I think this is interesting. I've seen pictures posted this week. I guess Bill Gaither must have turned some, I don't know if he turned 80 this week or something. Anyway, pretty famous guy. I'm saying a lot of people post pictures of themselves with their arm around Bill Gaither. One, in which, one of which I'm thinking, okay, if you ran into him at Kroger, okay, now we don't have Kroger here, but they do where Bill lives, um, he would not say, oh, Judy, it's good to see you again. I'm not sure. I'm not thinking about you, Judy. Because uh, I think this person just happened to catch him and said, can we take a selfie? On the other hand, I've got a friend that I sang with in college that Ron and I sang with some, who actually is a buddy with Gaither. And go further than that, your pastor is a buddy with Gaither. They call each other all the time. There's a difference in relationship there. If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if the king is at hand, the, the great message of it is you can take a selfie with him because he knows you. He is yours and you are his. There's a difference here in quality. That's what the two have to do with each other. He's going to say, don't look for another kind of kingdom or certainly for another king. 
Dan, read Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Isn't it interesting? And that's, by the way, after the resurrection. Okay, dude, when are you kicking the Romans out? I think his, the corners of his mouth had to turn up. Uh, guys, I'm getting two verses later, I'm out of here, you know. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't worry about the Romans, okay? Now, let's go on in our study and go to verse 18. We're going to read kind of the rest of this because in this context of the kingdom being here, there are, there are four men in particular we're going to kind of zero in on today. And the Lord calls. Remember back how we started. Where were you when God called your name? Okay. There are four men. They're all fishermen. Roger Stevens kind of guys. Okay. Um, and he's going to call them. Cindy, can I get you to go back to 18 and read through 22? Okay, now, there are two sets of brothers here. Simon, what's the name we most know him at? Peter. Peter. Simon and Andrew, okay, brothers. Uh, they are both, uh, they're the, the Jonah brothers. Not the Jonas brothers, that's an entirely different deal. Because he will call him some point, Simon Bar Jonah, his dad must have been named Jonah, or John. Uh, okay, so Andrew and Peter, or Andrew and Simon, and James and John, they're, they're in, in the verses that follow. So these four guys were probably in some kind of business together. They were in a guild of some kind, a fishing guild, and they knew each other. What, I, what you've got to catch here is they had heard Jesus speak before. They were all followers of John the Baptist before he was in prison. Okay. Probably John, you remember all those conversations where John pointed to Jesus and said, follow him. I've got to, you've got to increase and I've got to decrease. He's got to increase and I've got to decrease, okay? So they're still employed in the fishing business, but they've met Jesus before. So don't think that this was just some casual thing. They, he walks by and says, hey, follow me and they... Okay, but they do immediately follow on this conversation, all right? They had met him before, but something about this beckoning is different. At once they followed. This was now urgent. I get the sense that if they had not decided to follow him on this day, to leave the nets and follow him, they would have missed their opportunity. So they did. Now, here's my question. How do you know when God's calling you to immediate action. I can't answer that for you. I can't answer that for you. I would say, if God is calling you to something, you need to ask him, okay, Lord, when? 
How? Um, okay, God, if God is calling you, is he calling you to do something now or is he calling you to get ready for something for the future? But assume that if he's calling you, he's probably calling you for sometime pretty soon. They left him uh, nets immediately to follow him. Now, there, um, I, I want you to think about one thing as we think back to, and then we'll, we'll close out here. I want you to think back to my, my original thought, my original question, where were you when God called your name? All right, what were you doing? Um, I'm not a fisherman, but if I were a commercial fisherman as these four men were, I would, I'm told, and it makes perfect sense to me, that, um, that they would spend time that we would probably call boat time, casting nets, all right, casting their nets in the, from the boat, but they would also spend a lot of time in their, in their um, uh, work as fishermen on, in what I would call deck time. What did they do when they were on the deck? Well, on the deck, they would mend nets. They'd make sure they were ready to go. They might have to uh, um, kind of do some boat work, that kind of thing. But there was time that they spent in the boat casting nets and there were other times when they, that was equally as important, maybe more so important, when they were mending their nets to be cast at some point. Now, here's my question. It's relative to the question I left for you. How do you know when God's calling you to immediate action? When the time comes for you to fish, what are they fishing for here? Men, ladies, women. When the time comes for you to fish, Will you have spent enough time on the deck, on the dock, sorry, to be effective? When the time comes for you to fish, have you spent enough time on the dock to be effective? I, I, I think that dock time includes reading this word. I think that's maybe the most important part of it. I think it's certainly talking to God. If, how will you recognize if his call is pretty immediate, you're going to ask him. You're going to listen. Uh, so reading, praying, maybe memorizing part of it that you can use as you're casting your net. And certainly, and I stole my own thunder here just a second ago, listening. Have I spent enough time on the deck reading and praying? And listening. Have I spent enough time on the dock that when I get in the boat and he says, okay, now man, cast your net. I'm ready for it. I recognize it. Can I tell you this? Not everyone has the gift of evangelism. Paul, would you agree with me on that? I'm, I'm talking to a guy who does. Not everybody has the gift of evangelism. But everyone is called to tell your story. Because nobody's got your story. All right? Not everybody's called to be Billy Graham. But everyone's called to be a witness. What I want to challenge you with today as we close is just, are you spending enough time on the dock getting your net ready? So that when he does tap you on the shoulder and say, okay, man, cast the net.
Cast the net. Cast the net. All right. Here we go. This scares me to death, but here we go. I want you to be ready. I want me to be ready. 